Welcome to the Thinking Tree Podcast, a production of Ecoholics Private Limited. Ever found yourselves entangled into the web of economic concepts? They are pretty freakish to be honest. But if you don't understand how it works, then you should definitely keep listening. Thinking Tree brings to you the best minds from the world of economics to talk about the current matters of importance and the freakish way in which they affect our lives. The show is strictly for educational purposes. The opinions expressed on the show are personal to the individuals appearing in the show and not those of Thinking Tree Ecoholics Private Limited. The show is not intended to offend or defame any individual, entity, caste, community, race or religion or to denigrate any institution, person, living or dead. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hello and welcome to Ecoholics Thinking Tree Talk Show. Today we have with us Dr. Ashima Goel. Professor, IGIDR, and member of Monetary Policy Committee at Reserve Bank of India. Welcome, ma'am. Welcome to our show. Thank you. COVID has had a devastating impact on the world economy, and the end is nowhere in sight. The Indian economy went through major ups and downs, but not everyone knows the whole picture clearly. That is why we have the expert to know the reality about the Indian economy. Ma'am, my first question to you, how badly has COVID affected the Indian economy? What are some of the long-term and short-term problems caused by it? Yeah, as you said, this is a pandemic, a global you know, problem which comes once in a hundred years. So we must expect it to impact us badly. And especially India had a lot of vulnerabilities because of the size of the country, because of the poverty, the congestion. So given all that, I think we have managed pretty well. Our per capita terms, our numbers of infection, death rates and so on are very, very low. Though if you look at the absolute numbers, it looks very high because of our population size. Short term, very large economic costs from the lockdown. But uh, so in that in Q1 of this year, we saw growth plunge more than 20 percent. But this is. uh, This is a a short term cost, and I don't think it will persist in the long run because of the lot of uh, policy measures taken, particularly from the Reserve Bank that have helped, and the government, the credit warranties, uh, which have helped firms survive. So we are are still in the middle of this, so we don't know, there are uncertainties, but I think the numbers on restructuring, if you talk to banks, uh, initial analyst estimates of NPAs and uh, uh, problems for firms were very, very large, but it seems that uh, firms have actually out you know, done much better in terms of profit. They've had cost cutting and uh, people in general are repaying. So NPA is also expected to be much lower than originally expected. Banks have acquired equity cushions and they're comfortable. So I, I, I think because of this, the persistence comes if firms die, if people lose jobs and then they don't come back into the job market. So... Otherwise, uh, you know, uh, endogenous growth theories tell us that if there is a natural disaster, like an earthquake or a fire or something which destroys capital, 
physical capital, but human capital is intact, then there's a very sharp recovery. Because people are there and they want to make up for the shock. And I think as Indians, we are resilient. So this may be one explanation for why we are outperforming analysts' expectations. We've done better in Q2. And in general, um, most parameters, we seem to be doing okay. So there's signs of a turnaround already. And COVID itself, I think we managed very well because we avoided that second peak. And in June, there was an economic recovery when the lockdown was lifted. But then uh, it started because of migrants, reverse migration, it spread. That's a problem of a large country and a democracy. You can't keep people in place. So it spread all over the country. Then states started imposing local lockdowns, which had a large economic cost. But I think what really helped us, say, compared to the UK and US and Europe, we're doing very badly in terms of second multiple peaks, is the gradual unlock. We didn't all of a sudden open everything. True. And large gatherings, places where there are large gatherings were the last in order of priority because those are the biggest spreaders, biggest super spreaders, yes. so yeah. to speak. And use of masks, etc., was encouraged. And then the unlock four in early September, the center specifically said states are not going to... Are, advised again imposing arbitrary restrictions on interstate movement because that was really disrupting supply chains. So after that was uh, mitigated, then we saw a gradual recovery. After September, we've seen industry and uh, doing much better. I think the supply chain disruptions are also reducing. They're coming back to normal almost. And of course, some industries are badly affected, hospitality, travel, etc. But there also you see substitution, you know, partly because we don't have those large rescue packages that you have in the West. People yes. here are very, you know, innovative. They see what the market, where there are opportunities and they go there. So we are True. seeing that substitution both by consumers and by producers. So as long as the people are intact, our death rate has been low, thank goodness. <laughs> and... Uh, they, they are resilient and uh, they will fight back and they're doing it all. Yes, because if private investment down, we can say consumption can drive the Indian economy in the next two quarters. No, for no, private investment, we are seeing because a lot of consumers um, were saving the better off. Even firms are deleveraging. So they're cash rich, they were tax yes. cuts. And now a lot of cement industries, apparently they started investment, uh, L&T had a big, you know, so we are seeing a revival of invest, private investment also. Because uh, there's a large increase in consumption of electronic goods and um, other online shopping, etc. Yeah. And my own theory is one, apart from resilience, another reason is that you are going through a credit drought in the economy, you know, since 2017. Because yes. demonetization withdrew a lot of cash from the economy. But after that, you had, um, you had in 2018, you had U.S. Fed rates going up and outflows. And because of that, there was aggregate liquidity tightening. Then ILFS collapsed and there was no liquidity window provided. So mm-hmm. aggregate as well as sectoral liquidity tightening. When already there's a problem of low cash in the economy. So all this coming one on top of the other, very tight liquidity. You know, you talk to people on the ground, they would say, we've never seen the economy like this. There's no money. Nobody wants to. You saw a sharp fall in consumer credit and growth fell. You know, so people say that uh, 
continuous fall in growth since 2017, but that's not true. Because in mid 2019, when the regime changed in RBI, the liquidity was loosened. And by February 2020, if you look at high frequency data, there was a turnaround, growth had picked up. But in March, COVID hit. So for the quarter as a mm. whole, it looked as if growth is continuously falling. For the year as a whole, growth came in only at 4%. But yes. there was a turnaround, and it was due to the relaxation in the liquidity constraints. And what COVID has done is there is an enhancement of the liquidity, you know, the measures yes. taken by our yes. government. So that is reversing this long-term kind of liquidity squeeze that was hurting the economy. And I think that is another reason why we are seeing a faster than expected. That's true. If you look forward, ma'am, the big question of the hour is, can India achieve $5 trillion target by 2024-25 without the intervention of any other major economic reform? So <clears throat> I think given the, sh the sharp growth shock, even if we grow rapidly next year, we'll reach the end 2019 levels by end of 21. No? Yes. That's about so it will be difficult to reach five trillion, you know, to stay with the earlier timeline. But uh, overall, uh, my own belief is that since 2011, our economic growth has really suffered because we've had excessive macroeconomic tightening and an excessive focus on reform. No, yes. <laughs> reform yeah. imposes costs, like we're seeing with these farmers' agitation. Well. Best reforms are not those that external agencies are telling us to do. They're those which you implement by stealth. You know, you improve the way the supply side functions, remove bottlenecks, re reduce the costs of doing business, continue to do this, enhance competition among states. That's the best way to do labor reform, yes. even agricultural reforms, you know. So rather than make a central announcement which because in democracy there are always some groups that are hurt and they start agitating it becomes more of a problem so reforms have to continue i say that we have many supply side problems in economy like india they need to be improved but it's an ongoing thing that must go on all the time but at the same time you have to maintain demand and unfortunately over the 2010s partly because we ran into those double deaths double deficits after overstimulation yes. after the global financial yes. crisis. So that decade saw extreme macroeconomic strictness and industry growth, investment has really collapsed ever since been very low, ever since 2011. Yes. But some essential reforms were done, such as the IBC, you know, we had overlending by banks, NPAs. So we have sufficient reform in the financial sector. Banks, actually net NPAs were down to 4% in public sector early this year, you know, and private sector banks also have acquired large equity cushions. NPAs have not risen with this crisis. They're seeing quite a lot of repayment. Yes. So they're ready to lend and we have diversification in the financial sector. So now, you know, the realization that you need to give macroeconomic stimuli while continuing yes. Reforms, yes. reforms, I think we go to better in the next decade if that is that position is taken. So we, and According to me, what the government has to do is continually do supply-side reforms quietly and at the same time make sure that demand is one step ahead of supply. You know, then there 
productivity increases, people, private enterprise comes forth, they make money. Yeah? Then we can grow rapidly because we have so much of labor and our capital is flowing in, can be used product. We have a big opportunity because of diversification from China. You know, another mm -hmm. reason is a better than expected recovery in exports because you talk to industry on the ground, they say that they're getting inquiries from people who want to diversify from China, want to import from yes. India and also those supply chains, governments, production, PLI, production linked incentives. Yes. You should see, yes. we're already seeing some industry come in more and that will then create large scale employment. And, no? And ripple effect, and multiplier effect of that. Yes. 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 Uh, talking about banking sector, disinvestment is one of the major topics of discussion nowadays, though it comes with a mixed opinion. On the one hand, it considered necessary for better functioning of our public sector undertakings. But on the other hand, puts the PSU under a lot of financial strain, needing merger or closure as a solution. In the light of this statement, what is your opinion on the privatization of banks? I think we need to distinguish between public sector undertakings and public sector banks. Yes. So we have to be, you know, the business of government is not to be in business. They're not particularly yes, good at running business. Yes. And like Air India, you know, huge sink for taxpayers' money, continuously making losses. The reason is that there is all kind of intervention and uh, you know non-commercial kind of uh, uh, decision making, which hurts the organisation. Excessive social objectives, employment, etc. So it's much better to privatise, and that means uh, you know no no interference in the commercial decision making. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And also. Because of the growth path we followed, the government has huge assets, but they're all underutilized. They're non-performing. They don't make money when they could, you know. So, and part of uh, better governance is to restructure towards providing health, nutrition, environment, you know, public goods. Public goods. So, I think this disinvestment has to be done in a better manner so that it releases the real value in these assets. I think that's one reason, and they are actively doing that now because uh, they're getting a lot of expert advice on how to do it. Equity markets are thriving. So, you know, the disinvestment has to be such that uh, there is no interference, and then private investors are more confident if they think it continues to be a public sector organization mm. they just have a small share it's not going to do well but this is for public sector enterprises per se but when you come to public yes. sector banks there i think the arguments you were making about the costs of privatization because yes. you know we've seen a lot of problems in yes bank and icici bank private sector banks also Yes. And India, our credit deposit ratios are very low. We need to large expansion in banking. So, and then, you know, like when credit growth was very slow last decade, say after the 2014 set quality review, I was, remember I was talking to some Bank of America person and I was saying that, why don't you lend? What is stopping you from lending? You don't have NPAs. No, no, no. It's always the public sector banks that take the lead in development. You know, so mm -hmm. private sector banks only do retail lending. 
very yes. safe lend. They will not lend for infrastructure, creating national mm. assets or Janthan Yojana inclusion, all that. And apart from that, I think that the financial sector has inherent risks and instability, especially because people think the same and they move in a herd and set prices get distorted and it crashes. So it's better to have a diversified financial sector. Public sector banks with different objectives. But at the same time, you know, the reform so that there is no day-to-day -day interference in commercial decisions. And I think we are seeing that because I was on a bank board for some time just to understand. And I saw that there is very little interference and banks are being restructured to take commercial risk-based decisions. You know? And so, like, look at this uh, credit warranty, one of the schemes given in this after COVID. They have. Uh, they are carefully assessing the risk. It's risk-based lending. Only firms that are likely to be able to right. repay in the future. Yes. You know. So it's not just that you are giving money and it's a sort of mela or loan mela which used to happen earlier. True. You know. And there is no. So and at the same time, government has said it will bear the risk. So you are seeing banks like Kotak doing this lending. That is yes. the way to move in the future. That you provide transparent subsidies. Then you let that person take decisions. For public sector banks, they used to say this corruption issue, the investigation by CAG, because after the NPAs and all this lending yes. to Kingfisher, a lot of investigation that made bankers really afraid to lend. But even that has been resolved because there's been some modification in the in the Prevention of Corruption Act. So that, yeah. So that only if you have disproportionate assets can you be investigated, not just if you take a commercial decision which goes wrong. There is a risk in every commercial decision. So that fear factor also, I think there's enough reform. And uh, it's good to have banks with this, you know, who are not, who don't have the same objectives as a private sector bank, but are left to make their own decisions without interference. So I personally don't think there's a case for large-scale privatization of public sector banks, but improve their functioning governance, maybe merger for the very big ones. Yeah, yes. but at the same time, government must monetize its assets, make sure it, you know, either earns from them or sells them and uses that money for other objectives where it's more mm -hmm. public goods involved. Yeah, because these are idle resources. We can like, use yes. it for better. Idle or underutilized. Underutilized. You know, the value yes. is not released. It's it's uh, some a lot of land is like that. It's we have seen, ma'am, that implementation of DBT in LPG has been successful in blocking leakages. Do you think that India's banking structure is ready for a shift from subsidies to direct benefit transfer altogether? Uh, yes, I think uh, uh, the initial experiments with DBT have shown a lot of savings in terms, you know, the, I think, uh, Rajiv Gandhi had said that um, out of every rupee spent, rupee. only one fourth goes to the poor, the rest all intermediaries. So you really need to, and not only that wastage and leakage issue, the other issue is that now our per capita income levels have gone up. We are at a level where WTO, you know, does not allow you to, it's, uh, it's uh, like US has brought lots of cases against us because you cannot have interventions that distort prices and resource allocation. Yes. So direct transfers are feasible, even for farmers is MSP issue. 
you cannot interfere in prices is distorts it, it creates a huge waste in economic terms like as a nation we are producing too much rice and wheat punjab is ruining its soil negative growth yes. if you take account of the natural resource you know from overuse yes, of water extraction yes. etc and they have gone into a monoculture which is really harming their uh, environment soil everything so that's that's from the 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 signal from prices the msps are set to high for these two crops they are short for these so there's incentive and was needed at the time in the green revolution not now so overall we have to move so as i said this credit warranty this is an ideal design where it's available to any bank that does earlier quota could never lend to smes but now they are lending because they can get this warrant the the warranty from the government yeah yes. so you know so you move to these sort of transparent subsidies transfers that do not distort prices or uh, uh, force uh, commercial entities to make non commercial decisions which create losses and therefore create waste yes. so overall i think as a nation we are moving to much better better way of giving these subsidies direct transfers rather than those that distort prices and create distortion there international pressure for this as well as our own the development of technology aadhar and and um, jan you know jandan yojana comes and so on so that this can be reached to all corners efficiently with minimal leakage yeah India's record high unemployment is no longer news but it remains un- an unresolved major issues that has become the root of many other issues in the Indian economy. There are many researches providing uh, proving that banks lending activity is directly proportional to the job creation in an economy. In this context how do you see job growth in India? Yes sir um i think again we need to make a conceptual distinction between unemployment and underemployment because yes. i think like tn shrinivasan used to say when you are you have a lot of poverty when you are poor you can't afford to be unemployed so we have all kinds of um, if you look at the unemployment statistics 6% 8% is not very high unemployment do you look by uh, say young people it's very high with skills because until a certain age they are looking for a better higher productivity job they don't get it they settle for something which is it might not be so productive and we've seen with the migrants recently you know that there are so many yes. people who are moving from agriculture low productivity or try and get a higher productivity job so it's actually about underemployment improving the productivity with which people are employed and that it's been one of the failures of our development model we've not been able to provide large scale low skill employment you know such as by yes. having large factories economies of scale which would be productive which would help allow us to export compete in the export market also so as i said now this diversification of uh, firms from china gives us an opportunity and uh, long term reforms to reduce the cost of doing business all this subsidy because a lot of our subsidy structure was designed to raise costs for business for example yes. and hurt the yes. environment the example is uh, you know this diesel being cheaper than uh, uh, the subsidy diesel subsidy that led to a da- and, and uh, railway is charging higher price for freight yes to subsidize low cost tickets for percent so that meant that freight traffic diversified to road from rail and cheaper in terms of resource cost 
And then it hurts the environment, it raises, you know, we are importing oil, so it makes our balance of payment adverse, all kinds of cost, costs. Sure. That's the way, this, again, free electricity to the poor, a stealing of electricity and very high electricity charges for industry. One of the highest in the world. How can yes. you compete in the export market? So all this, now you change, you give a direct subsidy, DBT to the poor, you charge for electricity, you don't charge firms to no? And so we are innovative, uh, new kinds of meters that allow you to measure electricity. Yes. All these issues, uh, there will be a lot of improvement, which will help uh, reduce, because one of the ways to increase employment is reduce costs of doing business. La let large economies of scale occur, which also reduces costs, which makes you competitive in exports. But you were talking specifically about bank lending. So here also, I think, uh, a lot of the bank say that it was much higher in the 2000s yes. and growth, so we won't have growth. But, you know, we need to realize that in the 2000s, a lot of the lending was to large infrastructure, finance large infrastructure. It was a fundamental asset liability mismatch because banks were borrowing short-term deposits, Short. lending long-term. And they would not be able to turn this over, you know. Actually, that time it was thought that there'd be takeout financing, financial sector would develop and they would be able to turn over these loans. But it didn't happen because of the global financial crisis and the whole thing crashed. And so we were left with this problem of large NPAs in banks. So now, as I said, this reform, banks are now doing credit-based lending. They're lending more to retail than to firms. Firm loans are largely working capital, not the big infrastructure loans or huge loans to say Kingfisher and you know, that sort of thing, large exposure to one company, no. We are lending to MSMEs, but that is diversified, you know. So even if there's an NPA, one firm closes down, it's not going to be thousands of crores that, you know. So yeah. you're not going to, and a lot of firms are deleveraging, so they're actually cash rich. And yes. they're preferring to raise equity, which is a lot of money is coming in, or borrow abroad where interest rates are low, or borrow through corporate bonds. The corporate bond market is also developed. So... Because the financial sector has diversified now, there are other sources of finance. And that's healthy because banks lending for infrastructure is not healthy. It's setting healthy. them up to fail. Yeah? Yes. So it's a set liability mismatch. So I think that uh, we have sufficient reforms. Like currently, if you see the very latest data shows the overall credit growth is not large still. And we have a very low credit deposit ratio compared to most countries. We need to increase it. But you're seeing a large rise in retail loans. Even public sector banks are focusing on that rather than lending to firms. Yeah? If you just look yes. at retail loans, there's a big turnaround. If you yeah. look at non-bank food credit, compare, uh, say, from November this year up to November to last year, there's been a turnaround, a large increase. You know, and also increase in, um, in qualified placement of corporate um, bonds, you know? um, private placement, sorry of corporate bonds, commercial papers, other kinds of equity IPOs have risen recently. So other kinds of sources of venture funds are coming in for firms. Okay. So it's not that bank credit is the only criteria, but banks are lending more to private parties, to households for consumption. And NBFCs are also there. They, other, they were doing a lot of consumer credit lending. Now there's a turnaround in housing finance companies. You're seeing a rise there. And you're seeing yeah. some movement 
real estate where a lot of assets were just stuck. You know, they're not able to sell. Buildings were in trouble. So you're seeing a turnaround in these sectors, which is very good for the economy. So these things start gradually and then they build up. You know, as long as policies are correct yes. and they don't bang everything shut, yes. <laughs> like yes, they yes. did in 2010. So okay. we should see it grow gradually, and there will be shocks. But as long as you stabilize your policies, you know, compensate. That's what macroeconomic stabilization is essential. But yes. there is some automatic yes. uh, stabilization also, which comes from diversification. I keep saying that for the Indian economy. But you reach a level where you, you know, like, look at the last year, industry was absolutely shut down with the lockdown. The rural economy was doing well. well you know, yes. exports of service, high tech continued, you know, the outsourcing. So yeah. you have one sector doesn't do well, others are compensating. You know, that is a true, natural. True. Polio diversification, like you said, yeah. finance that helps the economy survive shocks. So I think we are yeah. in a better place going forward. Yes, because I think COVID is the like one of the positive we can see about COVID is agricultural growth rate, and that is quite phenomenal initially. That as well as diversification from China, so many countries have realized they should not develop too much, depend too much on one country. Even yes. our own industry, like I like to say that we had an import substitution regime which killed industry, you know, before reforms because they were too comfortable, they did not compete. But after yes. liberalization in the 90s, what we had was import competition. You know, this mm. industry cost was very high and they were asked to compete with China, which is subsidizing its industry. So I Trade deficit with China jumped to, I don't know, $60 billion or something it was yes. recently. Yes. And uh, little, little things, and we didn't have to allow economies of scale because of labor laws and so on. So industry just could not compete. So now you're moving to what I call an export competition regime, yes. where firms are encouraged to export, so they have to be competitive. Reforms are taken to yes. reduce their costs. We have an opportunity to attract global supply chains and build yes. large economies of scale. And so finally, we might get, you know, a large growth in exports okay. and large employment creation. True, because we have widened our horizon and that mm. we have seen in our economic survey, wealth creation, network product, global mm. supply. Yes, yes. All that you can have cumulative sort cumulative. of large jump in growth. At last, ma'am, if you could give us words of encouragement for economics. Yeah, as I was telling you, I think EduTech has a big future. So you're well positioned there. Also for economics, uh, I think that, uh, you know, we really need uh, organizations that give uh, conceptual clarity. There's a lot of confusion in economics as well as non-ideological because a lot yes. of the policy reform is very motivated. It's either you're a leftist or you're a free market person. It's not fact-based. It's not uh, based on the context or it just like I think a lot of the noise we saw about raise fiscal deficits, spend as much as the US, America, a lot of pressure, media, it's all very hyped up and so on. You know, and it doesn't think of our context where that same sort of thing, given our numbers, it would have meant an explosion in debt. It is not feasible. You know, so you have to make know the structure and take a position based on facts. 
So I, I think that you have a good platform for this kind of to encourage, you know, more senior yes. dialogue, clarity of concepts. I hope you use it well over the years. Yeah. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you for your amazing insights. And we often find that most of the opinions online are politically infused, and hence it is extremely difficult for the students to analyze something from a purely academic perspective. That mm -hmm. is why I was like, I founded this platform to make it conceptually yeah. clear. It was mm -hmm. our pleasure, ma'am, to have you on our show. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you. All the best. Yeah. You were listening to the Thinking Tree podcast powered by Ecoholics Private Limited. For more information, visit www.ecoholics.in.